So I'm making about a decision every 0.3 seconds, roughly. I'm doing that for literally 12 hours a day, every single day. And so you can just imagine your brain is just firing like this, like just one, boom, 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 boom. All day long, you're making like very, very important decisions about like hundreds of pots for hundreds of thousands of dollars, huge amounts of money. And you don't have time to like reflect and say like, well, that sucked. I just lost a ton or like celebrate or do anything, right? It's just constant. Make the best decision nonstop. And like, who knows what that did to my brain? I wish I could have had it before and after MRI, but that's, you know, that's how my brain developed in like those formative years. Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. Not Boring Founders is the podcast where I turn on the microphone and have conversations with the people who are building the future. I've been looking forward to today's conversation for a little while because Layer Zero is building critical infrastructure that makes a multi-chain future possible. It's also one of those companies that's just started to come up in conversation more and more and more as I talk to founders, people saying that something that they're doing is possible that wasn't possible before because Layer Zero exists. And that's normally a good sign to start getting excited about something. What I didn't anticipate in this conversation, though, was how much fun I was going to have talking to Brian. I always like it when I can kind of ask weird questions and a founder just gets what I'm trying to say and, and answers the question even better than I could have hoped. And that happens throughout the conversation today. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I think we're hitting our stride here at Not Boring Founders. Before we get to that conversation, though, I want to give a big old thank you to the sponsor of today's episode and the presenting sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, FTX US. Now, FTX is a giant in crypto. It's the exchange and derivatives platform that the professionals use, one of the largest exchanges in the US, and the makers of the FTX app. The FTX app is the most complete app in crypto. It allows users to buy crypto like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, and Doge, and even NFTs with no fees. Users can use a crypto debit card, track their entire crypto portfolio, and get important news updates. It's also cheaper than any other cryptocurrency exchange. There's no fixed minimum fee on transactions, no ACH fees, and no withdrawal fees. You've heard me talk about it enough. You should just go try it. Go download the FTX app in your favorite app store. And when you sign up, enter code NOTBORING. Or you can just click in the link in the show notes. And either way, you'll get a free coin when you trade your first $10. What you didn't know is that FTX is also becoming one of the top venture investors in crypto. For example, on Wednesday, FTX co-led the latest round in Layer Zero with my friends at A16Z and with Sequoia. And today, we get to talk to Layer Zero Labs CEO and co-founder Brian Pellegrino. Let's get to it. I'm here with Brian Pellegrino, the CEO and co-founder of Layer Zero. Big, big, big day, which we're going to get to uh, in one second, but first... Brian, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Can you tell us what the world looks like if you and Layer Zero succeed wildly? Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for having me, first of all. I think the world in which we succeed wildly is almost a little bit boring in that like, 
like when when you have TCP/IP and it just works, like nobody thinks about the internet stack anymore, right? Like nobody is thinking like even like even when you go to school for computer science, you spend like class on it or a couple of classes in the networking class. But in an ideal world, when you're talking five, ten years out, uh, you know, there's this invisible fabric of technology that enables communication seamlessly between all these chains. Everything is hyper optimized for certain use cases, and applications leverage that in the way that the and the way that they leverage sort of modern technology stacks today. I would say in 10 years from now, you know, maybe you won't have heard of me or like the average person won't have heard of me, but everybody will be using layer zero. So I, I think that's kind of an optimistic scenario. I mean, this is, this is one of the promises and one of the things that I think I got initially uh, excited about mentally about Web3 was like, fuck, somebody out there created TCP IP, SMTP, all these protocols that we rely on every day. And they got like $0 from that. And so hopefully you get a lot of dollars if you create the next version of, uh, of TCP IP. What is layer zero today? Like, how do you get from where you are today to that future state? If we had done this podcast three weeks ago, I would have told you it's an idea that's about to launch. We launched just almost two weeks ago now. So we're now public on seven main nets run. ETH, BNB Chain, Polygon, Avalanche, Phantom, Arbitrum, and Optimism will be rolling out to Solana, Terra, so a bunch of others coming up in the very, very near future. Now it's, now it's more than that. Now we launched, we had built, we always wanted... There's a couple of reasons why we wanted a liquidity transfer mechanism sort of living on top of this because like generic messaging is cool and you can do a lot of things with it. But if you can't like move the, the units of currency around between chains and a lot of the base interactions that happen, like people need to develop that on their own. So we launched this thing, Stargate, which, which is exactly that, a liquidity transfer mechanism. And in two weeks, actually, in like the first seven days, it hit $3.5 billion in total TVL. So it was like the fastest growing DeFi protocol of all time. It's been a really, really crazy two weeks, let's say. But so right now, current state of the world, Layer Zero is live. It's on seven chains. Anybody can build on top of it and use it to send messages and applications. And then Stargate is live and anybody can sort of wrap and compose that and do all the things that it was built to do. So what kind of things are people building on top of it? Like when we started... We very clearly were like a pure DeFi lens. Like that's all that we thought about. We're like, all right, there's all these DEXs. There's all of these interesting applications. There's like totally fragmented. Like Sushi's on 14 chains. I think they're on 16 chains now. And you can't do anything between them. You can't vote. You can't like swap between them. Like, this world doesn't make any sense. That was a lens that we were looking at originally. And then now since announcing a couple months ago, like 50% of our inbound has been gaming and NFTs, a uh, huge amount of interest from the TradFi space. So, uh, you know, as you just saw the round was just announced today, like PayPal Ventures came to the round. That's one of the, their first ever uh, check for them holding tokens, you know, a bunch of just really cool things where uh, very large players from the traditional space are getting very, very serious about this stuff. So now there's this whole lens of a lot of people are building a lot of very interesting things. One of the first things, Sushi is already voting right now to integrate uh, composing Stargate to make swaps, basically be able to swap any asset on any chain, any asset on any other chain. There are people doing really cool things with NFTs. Like there's this pattern now where, you know, you can think of your Twitter profile picture, right? The hexagon you've set as some NFT on Ethereum, but your game lives on some other chain and you're playing and you're doing something in that game. And as you earn things or you get upgrades, that propagates out to the other chains, updates the metadata there. And then your Twitter profile picture is like immediately updated, right? There's a bunch of cool things there that like I had never thought about that people are starting just like brainstorm and building. And uh, I think we're gonna see a ton of really, really cool things. This is why you build primitives and, and infrastructures because the collective brain is is bigger than any one person's Ab brain. No absolutely. You just brushed over 
this round that we raise, Layer Zero Labs today announced a Series A Plus. I think this was like literally an hour before uh, before we hopped on the phone here. Co-led by A16Z, FTX Ventures, and Sequoia. So you know, I know people are you know making a trade-off sometimes between do I go A16Z crypto, do I go Sequoia, kind of the more traditional fund. You just went both plus FTX. This is one of those Coachella kind of poster announcements where like all the good funds other than Not Boring Capital out there are participating. You have Phantom, you have Dapper Labs. So you have participation, you have Avalanche, you have participation from a bunch of the chains themselves. I don't see the Ethereum Foundation on here. I guess just tell me about how this round came together and how you think about having the different kind of L1 ecosystems invest in, in the round. We've always thought about it from a lens of like, our goal is to be totally agnostic, right? We're building a, a technology primitive. We are going to extend everybody. We're not going to gatekeep anybody. That's always been the core focus. And so for us, it was really just like, we were thinking about the leads. The round had, you know, a, a, a lot of interest for, for a round that was valued at a billion. You know, they were pushing like $2 billion of aggregate interest for it. So it was a very competitive round. It was really crazy. For the leads, it was more just they're all incredible groups. They all do different things like very, very, very well. Um, and I think we just wanted to leverage that for the ecosystem funds. We basically just reached out to everybody. We said, Hey, we're like, whatever, whether you write a check, whether you don't write a check, doesn't matter. We're going to be deploying there. We're going to be working with you. We have amazing relationships with all of them now. Uh, but we wanted to extend the offer to any of the ecosystem funds to say, if you want to feel free. Um, and that was basically the stance we took universally with all of them. In general, it's been good just to start that conversation because this has been everything from like, we found there's something in the way that, that Phantom RPC handles things different than like the Ethereum yellow paper. And like, they immediately pushed a fix that allowed us to like, do you know, just having this open line to the teams, just be like, hey, like you're handling these pieces of state data differently than like the Ethereum EVM does. What do you think is sort of the best way? How do you think about this? And having those open lines have been hugely helpful. So I, I would imagine there are just so many little things like that as you're dealing across all of these different L1s, you're working with L2s as well. Could you explain, like, maybe not to a fifth grader, but to like a very smart eighth grader, exactly how layer zero works and what's going on when I just instantly click and I'm able to do a swap between chains? Most people put their own chain in the middle, something like that. We took the component of we're going to take an endpoint that lives on each chain. So we have an endpoint deployed on Ethereum. An endpoint, as I'm calling it, is just a library of smart contracts that deals in validation and messaging, right? So it just deals in taking an incoming message, validating that the, the proof is valid, that the transaction proof provided sort of walks and matches the block header provided, the receipt true. And then assuming that it's valid, it passes on to the contract. And so when an application is interfacing with that, what they do is they just implement two things, send and receive, right? So that's all they care about. They think about it like packets on the internet. They're sending some arbitrary bytes array and they're just interpreting that however they want on the other side. And so for them, like the whole point was to make it as easy as humanly possible for applications to build on top. And that's it. They just say, this is a data I want to send. I want to invoke that contract on that chain and like give it this data, do something with it. And same thing as they're receiving messages. Technically how it's working is you're basically breaking apart these pieces of a, of a block. You're passing them on through these, these two systems, combining them in the other chain and, and sort of validating. So right now all the chains are EVMs. So you're basically just taking this MPT, this Merkle Patricia tree, taking the block header, which has a receipt through, 
transaction proof, and then you're walking that on the chain. Now, when you get to non-EVM chains, which again, will be on Solana, Terra, et cetera, uh, this becomes a lot more interesting. Now the question is, okay, how do, how do you walk and validate an MPT on Solana? And then maybe even more interestingly, how do you take like a slice of proof of history and validate that like in solidity on the EVM? So there's like some fun technical gritty yeah. stuff that like goes into this. You're going to be about six miles above my head here, but how, how do you start taking slices uh, of proof of history and validating them in the EVM? Yeah, so we will we will come back, I guess, with a with a full breakdown. So basically, we've had this idea about it. We we were really focused on launch prior. We've had a rough idea of what we want to do in a run by Anatoly and the team, and like when in you know basically as a yeah this 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 should work. This should be technically possible. We're just starting to write that point now and just going through and like okay, how are we actually like how are we actually breaking this down? What like what needs to get created? What needs to get done? I don't want to say something that ends up not being the way that it's actually done. We we have an idea and it's been validated that we think this is how we'll do. Um, but I'll come back to you after. And I do most of my activity on Cardano. When is the Cardano integration coming? We will have Everybody at some point in time, let's just say that, you know, there's, a, if there's enough smart contract functionality to do anything, we'll, we'll be there eventually. Awesome. One of the things that's fascinating to me, I think about this is that by having layer zero exist in the middle, it allows people to interact on the chain where it makes the most sense, right? Like if liquidity can move across chains super, super easily, it actually, I think it, it, just progresses the world, I think, more towards a multi-chain future where blockchains are built specifically. What do you think happens to the L1 ecosystem over time, given your existence and growth? So I think there's two things that I find pretty interesting. One is the way, the potential way that applications can change the way that they're built. So every application right now is built in the way that we built software in like the early days of the internet. You'll basically a single server application. You like host it in a computer in your house, or like maybe you put it in a data center, but everything lives there and the entire application is running there. And now you look at modern software design and everything you're using all of these microservices that are hyper optimized for different things, for storage, for compute, for whatever it is. Right. And so now you have the ability to actually do something that's much more interesting at an application layer where like you have chains that are hyper optimized for storage. You have chains that are hyper optimized for throughput. So now you can have all of your storage live on our weave. And then you can take and bundle a bunch of that and do a really complex computation on like a high throughput chain and then roll the result back and actually output the result, right? That is really interesting to me. I, I don't know how many other people are interested in that yet. To me, I see that being a potential route of like the, the way that applications actually get built being differently. And I, again, I'm not technical, but it feels like a big step in towards getting dApps that don't suck and dApps that feel a lot more like, you know, the way that modern web two software feels. Am I right on that? Let's let's certainly hope so, because for a lot of things, we have a long ways to go. That's definitely the hope. And then the other thing that I'm really interested in is just pure, the pure abstraction. I think about it from the sense of, you know, I always, I always talk about your, any decks, right? And you want to swap from chain A to chain B. Like the normal process prior to this was like, you'll do a swap here, you'll leave, you'll go to some external bridge, you'll bridge. And then like, hopefully you make your way back to the DEX. Clearly at the application layer, like they want you to live in their UI and you just do something and the whole process gets executed. But abstract that even a level above, like now you have wallets, now you have all of these people who are sort of exposing the consumer to this, but trying to kind of keep it a little bit hidden. And the wallet doesn't want you to go to the DEX. Like you want to go asset A on chain X, asset B on chain Y, do it here. You want to go from this farm with 20% APY to this farm with 40% APY out of these 30 farms that we're showing you, well, now you don't even need to know 
the underlying chain you're on, what gas asset you have, you know, like all of that can be totally abstracted away. So the consumer experience to just be able to do these things in one click of a hundred percent beyond chain, it can still be a hundred percent non-custodial. All of this is like very, very, very compelling to me. And I think we will see a clear shift in that direction. And you're also, it feels like taking power away maybe a little bit from the underlying chains and then moving the, the battlefield almost up a layer. Who do you, you know, compete with? This seems like a huge opportunity to control the flow of things. Maybe you don't view yourself as controlling, but you're at least sitting in the middle of a lot of stuff. Who else is going after this? Because it can't just be you. Go back, you know, before we announced. So whatever it is, seven, seven months or something. And everybody was building a bridge. Everyone was very focused on value transfer. And, you know, look at the archives or the sites or anything like that. That's all anyone cared about. We we're just bridges. And then we announced and we're like, listen, we don't care at all about value transfer. It's like a special case of generic messaging. Like we are here to build a generic messaging protocol. And like, that's it. And then you look today and like 100% of anybody who's ever done anything bridging is like, we are a messaging protocol now. Um, and so if you look today, like everybody's a competitor. Everybody's ever bridged any asset is now a competitor. Re- realistically, like we'll see what that turns into. Most people are kind of retrofitting this uh, onto an existing system. And I think it's just like, at the end of the day, use most of the products and, and you kind of gauge the difference. But I do think it's a, it's a huge space to win. I think interoperability between this stuff is, is going to be a massive, massive unlock for all of the ecosystems. And obviously playing a role in that is just extremely valuable. I, I think there are a ton of people going at it. I think there will be more people going at it. Uh, and for us, it's always just been be as as much of a primitive as possible. So one of the things we've always cared about a ton, most, so again, I I mentioned most others kind of put some construct in the middle. Most of the parameterization in the current state of things live at the technology layer. So this could be something like you're going from chain A to chain B, like how many block confirmations are you going to wait for probabilistic finality? This could be what a set of validators are going to use in this, you know, all of those things are, that are decided at the technology layer. And that's always been frustrating to me because the example I give is like, in what world should a game that's verifying on chain B that like it owns a copper sword on chain A or somebody transferring $500 million, like in what world are they opting into the same set of security parameters? <laughs> like very clearly there's somebody is wildly overpaying or somebody's not getting nearly enough security, right? So for us, it's always just like move all of that up the stack to the application layer, have defaults if they don't want to think about it, but be the most modular and extensible primitive you can and allow the applications to control those sort of parameterization. Yeah, I, it, I mean, I I've, I've agree. I think that's always been funny that people who are trying to defend against, you know, chains that are trying to against, defend against state level uh, actors who are trying to hack Bitcoin versus, you know, your axes and maybe a bad day to bring that up. But, you know, like it's just a very different thing that you need to, to protect against. I've never written about or talked about something in Web3 where some group of people hasn't said, oh, this is stupid because of X, Y, or Z, or maybe like, you're abstracting away too much and people aren't interacting with each other. Like, who, who doesn't like your, your success? I think the biggest criticism broadly to the approach is that two things. People say, one, the applications aren't equipped basically to make these decisions. I argue that broadly they are. Like ultimately, very clearly, you're not going to have this set of, you know, 10,000 different parameterizations. There's going to be like four or five that are broadly used, but you basically allow people to kind of pick off of this frontier of cost and security. And there's just like, where do you want to live there? Like there's a very clear, like 
for more security, you just pay more. Like that's, that's how it works. And so like, where do you want to live? What fits your application? And so I think there will be this, this subset of four or five parameterizations that most people just opt into. And I think that is 100% and totally fine. The sort of most common criticism is, oh, the applications don't know what they're doing. They'll set bad parameterization and like users will get wrecked. And so for any application who doesn't like, yes, use the default. Like that is the advised thing to do. But I think giving people the levers uh, is super important. And who wins? Like, you know, other than you, I think this is like the right spot to be. Is it the ones who like actually give up on certain trade-offs and just go all the way after doing one thing really, really well? I just feel like the, the, the second and third order effects of what you're building are just really fascinating. We haven't gotten all the way down on them yet. Yeah, so I get asked this a lot. And, and my broad answer is, I've tried not to think about it too much because I've tried to design a system where I don't need to care. I don't need to care if there's a bunch of different layer ones or if there's like Ethereum is a settlement layer for everything and there's a thousand layer twos. Like it doesn't need to matter. In all of those cases, like communication primitives are needed. You need to be able to pass state between these. You need to be able to do all of these things, right? We have tried to build something that basically addresses that in all cases. My personal opinion on what I think will win, I think broadly the strongest orthogonal trade-offs will likely be the ones that have most relevance long-term. So if you have something that's like, you know, you have system A and everything becomes like a shade of, you know, 10, 20% performance improvement in either direction of like system A, well, that really is like likely to get washed out over time as like technology gets better and like system A scales and gets better, right? And so I think it's really just the, the fundamentally different approaches, solving sort of a different problems. So like we talked about storage and throughput and all of these things, right? Solving for those problems, those are where like, you know, these other systems are just not going to be able to do it as well as something that's in the same way, like you just you have to use external database services now. There isn't a choice, yeah. right? Um, and I, I think it's going to be the exact same in, in the case of this. I've been listening to a little Lex Friedman recently. I don't know if you've listened to his podcast. He's so good. And like, just ask weird questions. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to steal some of his stuff now. Like, why does it, why does it matter? Right? Like if, if web three starts to feel like just the internet, but you get to own stuff in the future, like, why does this matter to you? Why is it important? You know, all that, that kind of like philosophical stuff here. To me personally, or to like broadly to everybody. To you personally, like, why are you doing this? To me personally, I like hard problems. I've spent my entire life, like in an eclectic mix of doing a bunch of random things. And ultimately for me personally, I like solving hard problems. And like, that's what drew me to this. I've been in this space since 2013. So nine years now, uh, I love the people, it's a very eclectic mix of like just crazy and intelligent people and like people who just are very contrarian or have been very contrarian for a long time. I, I like the sort of grouping that it brings together, but ultimately I, I, I like solving hard problems. Broadly for people, I, I think there's like a very different answer and in, in, in why this stuff is is important and valuable, but but for me, yeah. So there's, there's different types of people that I've met who've been in the space since 2013. As long as you've kind of stuck with it, you've made enough money that you probably don't have to work if you've been in the space since 2013. Some people don't and are just like, you know, living it up. And some people like really just behave like they're still broke and want to like work on the hardest things. I feel like you're probably in that, in that category. What is it about your background that, that made you like that? What were you doing before you came into crypto? Like, it sounds kind of nice to also just be on an island. I mean, I've, al I've always been super competitive, like my entire life. That was always like a driving factor in terms of like what I did. I went to school for computer science, dropped out played poker professionally for eight years um, 
you know, was, was one of the best heads up no limit players in the world during that time, kind of played the highest stakes you could play. Me and my wife did like 80 countries. We just traveled poker got banned in the U S. So I started a company with my two co-founders and now actually we known each other for 16 years. We've done tons of things together in the past, sold that after two years. And that was a period where like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I tried the vacation thing and I, I packed up my wife and my one and a half year old son. And we did like 12 months, 12 countries in three months in, I realized that I can't really function without doing something. Wait, you did 12 um, months, 12 countries with a one-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. We started in Iceland, ended in Tokyo. How was that? I have an 18 month old. I can't imagine that. Oh, it was amazing. It was one of the best experiences we've ever done. He did like 50 flights during that period. He went to school and, uh, you know, we just tried to like live in each country. We were trying to decide if we wanted to stay in Vancouver or if we wanted to like live in a different place. So we rent an Airbnb. We lived like as we would live there. We went to school in France and Portugal and, you know, all, all over the world. Um, it was incredible for him. He's like unbelievably adaptable. He's eight years old now. So yeah, it was really good. Would highly recommend. Um, so cool. All right. We, we, yeah. we just did a flight with him, two flights with him recently. And he did a great job. I just, I just keep imagining like every flight is just one more chance that he's going to totally freak out. And not, I'm not going to want to say no, but... once, once, it, once it becomes normal for them, there's like none of that. That just doesn't happen. All right. So you did the, you did that. You came back and you said, I need to build something now. Or no, like, I didn't even come back work. three, three months in. I just totally rugged my wife and I just started coding on the laptop. And I was just like, I need to do something. Um, and so I just like sold this company. I'd seen these people making a ton of money doing basically projections on something. So I started building something to model baseball, professional baseball. Uh, I hated baseball. It was my least favorite of all the sports. We had the best data set. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. The DeepMind Atari demo had just come out. Um, and so it's like, I'm going to make this AI model, get myself technical again and like see what I can do in projection side. I up showing it to a friend who was playing DFS professionally and, and really just crushing it. He was like, you have to talk to these guys who did baseball modeling at MIT. And so I talked to them. This is like group of MIT PhDs. They just formed this new company, Row AI. And they were like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I want you to talk to somebody. And so they got me on a, a call the next day and that somebody was Billy Bean. Um, so like, Moneyball, the GM of the Oakland A's. Um, so I ended up doing work with a bunch of the pro MLB teams and like selling this stuff to the MLB teams. Started another company that got acquired, did random independent academic research. Again, with my two co-founders that like, effectively we created like the best poker solver by a factor of like 5,000. Got picked up and published by Noam Brown and Facebook AI Research. But, you know, they had both, both Carnegie Mellon and Unirus Alberta had spent like a decade on this problem. And we made like a very, very big leap forward in how this like counterfactual minimization works basically or, or solving this. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of nerds listening to this right now. <laughs> counterfactual rent minimization, is that what you just said? <laughs> counterfactual <laughs> regret minimization. The way that poker is solved, any game basically, uh, is a system of regret. That's, that's like an easiest way to walk to, to game theory optimal. So the really simple way if you're doing rock, paper, scissors would be like, okay, I throw a rock. Like if you throw a rock, I don't regret it at all. If you throw a paper, uh, I have a positive regret. And if you, so let's say positive one. And if you throw scissors, I have negative one, right? And the goal is just minimize regret. So when you're talking poker, you have like an unbelievably huge tree. And basically you go down every single decision node and you walk it to any, any root, any like terminal node. And you say, what is my range here? What is their range here? How much is in the pot? And that gives you a number. This is like, I've won this much on average when we got here. And then you walk that down every node and you like adjust all of your decisions. So you have one set of ranges for everything. You play it all out. You walk back and you say, well, that sucked. I'm going to, you know, not have that hand anymore. And you do this and then you play yourself like a 
a trillion times or so. Uh, by the end of it, you're really, really good at poker. So that's basically what this thing does. And obviously the, the tree state itself is like too, sharp, too huge. So uh, you solve the river and then we created this neural network that basically predicted this river. And then you use that neural network as like a heuristic for the turn and you roll it all the way back. But it was really, really interesting research at the time, considered a very hard problem and was super fun. All right, I need to ask a question that I've always wondered in the back of my mind because I am not a particularly good poker player, definitely not a good chess player, but I've always wondered like, what are the odds that I stumble into the casino drunk and because I play like such an idiot, I can bound somebody like you who's, who knows what they're doing and like just the moves are so unpredictable that like, like, what are the odds that I beat you over the course of call it a hundred hands? I end up with a bigger pot. Yeah, I mean, it depends how egregiously bad you're playing. But like, <laughs> when when I when I played online, I until I moved into cash later on. But originally, I played this game called Heads Up Sit and Goes, and your win rate in Heads Up Sit and Goes was five and a half percent. That would be considered like really good, right? So you're winning like fifty three percent of the time or something. Like you're not winning this massive percent of the time, but it's just like slow grind out, and that's actually what makes poker so much better in terms of making money than chess is that when you play a chess it doesn't matter if you're drunk or sober like you'll just never beat somebody who's like significantly better at you than in chess right and it's like it will just never happen and so like yeah. that's not really fun for people in poker they can like win a couple times and then they just it's very easy for the human mind to just like anchor to that like yeah like i won those but then i got unlucky these other times right and it just makes it a much better experience having this this element of of probabilism in there uh really really changes everything how much, and this might be like the dumb, obvious question, but like day to day when you're thinking about running layer zero and like what the space looks like, how many direct lessons are there from poker and how much just like your brain works in a certain way that is actually good for both things is there? I, I think it's more how my brain works. So I was, I was roughly talking to somebody about this kind of recently and that you have to understand, I, I still don't know like what happened to my brain. I played poker from the time I was probably 16 years old for the next like eight years I played 70 hours a week basically like it was the only thing that I did like I literally lived and breathed poker it was all that I did I never I didn't have a single period where I took like a three days off of poker ever until one time uh when I was like 24 ish I went to Costa Rica and there was no internet in the house when I thought there was going to be internet and so I couldn't play it was like the first time in a very long time that I'd ever taken multi consecutive days off of playing and so when I'm playing I'm playing six to eight tables and I'm playing heads up so it's one-on-one so decisions are very fast so I'm making about a decision every 0.3 seconds roughly I'm doing that for literally 12 hours a day, every single day. And so you can just imagine your brain is just firing like this, like just Holy one, shit. boom, 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 boom. All day long, you're making like very, very important decisions about like hundreds of pots for hundreds of thousands of dollars, huge amounts of money. And you don't have time to like reflect and say like, well, that sucked. I just lost a ton or like celebrate or do anything, right? It's just constant, make the best decision nonstop. And like, who knows what that did to my brain. I wish I could have had it before and after MRI, but that's, you know, that's how my brain developed in like those formative years. And so it's more, I think, conditioning to how my brain functions now than anything else. But yeah. So where does that apply? Like, does, does this feel slow? Actually, like this thing running a startup that most people think is like this really, really hard thing. Does it feel slow if you're used to making decisions that quickly or not? It's just a different 
No, I think it's just a different cadence. Just a massive weight of like things you have to do. And the list of things to do is always growing. And the the space of opportunities is always expanding. We're going to hang up this and I'm going to have 500 messages in Telegram, especially today, you know, thousands. Yeah, thank you for doing this in the middle of all of that. Huge, huge amounts of inbound from from projects and from 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 everybody, from all ends. So it's less about like fast, rapid, critical thinking. And it's much more about like, how do you focus your attention? How do you choose of all the things that you can choose? What is the thing in this like poker is obviously incredibly good for it's just like measuring EV, right? Like I model most of life as, as a game, right? You're trying to trying to structure different components and like ultimately you're, you're trying to optimize for something. It doesn't always have to be monetary. It doesn't always have to be winning in a game sense, but like you're optimizing for something. It can be time with your family. It can be anything, but like- Wait, I'm gonna push you on this one again. This is This is so much fun. When you say that you model life like a game, are you like actively modeling life like a game or just because of all those repetitions, like that's just kind of how you're making decisions? Are you thinking, what is my EV here ever? Or do you just kind of- Oh yeah, no, I'm, 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 I mean, I don't actually sit down and break it down very often, but like clearly from doing what I did for so long, but like in general, I think, no, I just like intuit those things reasonably well. And then when I need to dig in, I, I dig in. It's so fascinating. We're going to get to a spot. Ready Player Two was not a good book, uh, and I don't think it won any awards. But we are going to get to a spot where you get to like kind of live inside other people's brains for a little bit. And I think that's going to be so fascinating because I, I think it's going to be shocking how different each person's kind of experience of the world is. I think our, mine and yours are probably just very, very different. We're probably thousands of years away from that, but I can't wait. I had I had this realization recently because... Uh, I went and I spent time with somebody who, what he does is he, he writes on macroeconomics and like, you know, most of the largest funds in the world subscribe to him, but he just writes once a month and he just thinks deeply all month. And then he like writes and that's what he does. And it's like, ex- first of all, extremely different than I do. But at the same time, he's obsessed with poetry and he thinks of the world in poetry, right? Like as we're talking, and I spent, you know, many days and long hours talking to an amazing guy and he was just like, oh, you know, he would reference things like, this is like what this great poet said. He said this. And, and you know, like I had just, like, I grew up around technologists. Like that's where I spend all of my time. And like, I forgot that poets, ex- you know, like I just forgot that that person <laughs> existed in the world. And it was like such a reminder of just how different the human experience is. And people can be like, even the same things, the same markets, anything. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I could not agree more with you. Uh, I think it's fascinating. What's What's the exciting part for you now? So like you've gotten to this really hard part. You launched, you hit 3.5 billion in TVL faster than anybody else. Your brain moves quickly. You're competitive. I guess you have the competitors out there, but like when you wake up in the morning now, like what is the, the thing that you get most pumped about? Because again, you don't have to be doing this. So you probably are getting excited about doing it. Like what is that? First, we solved the hard problem. And I, I think like, We've done a bulk of that work. There's still always more to do. There's so much more research to be done in terms of creating better validation. There's just all of this, right? So like that stuff is good, but that's that's mostly driven. It's exciting. There's tons of people working on it. And like that is cool. But I think now it's mostly transitioning to a stage of like, of the, the competitive nature is kicking. And I actually, so early on we built, we didn't talk to anybody. We we're just heads down, totally stealth. And we just sat and built 100% ourselves in style. And we didn't show to anybody like the own protocol was basically completely finished. And then we went to this event in November uh, and we were like very, uh, I'll say naive. And we like sat down with somebody who might be viewed as like a competitor, but they gave us like four minutes of time. He's made it very clear that like it was competitive and like, they're not here to like be friends and like, you know, whatever, work on this stuff together really triggered something in me to remember like, oh yeah, like the blinders can come off and this is a competitive space now, right? So now it's really about like, 
okay, we've launched, we've done the cool thing. Now it's like, how, how do you act? Like, what does winning look like? And how do you get that? It's really about adoption. It's about creating like to get the adoption, you need to make the thing that is the best for all of the applications to build on, make their lives easy, make it easy to do, make it that they have the exact trust assumptions and properties that they want. And so now it's, it's really just about that. It's just about integrations winning. And like when that ends, I think again, the goal is just like everybody is using layer zero and couple years after that like people stop even like thinking about layers or right? like like ultimately yeah. that is like kind of the path but no i think now it's it's more of that just like running a company war rooming with everybody all of the time is like doing the things that you have to do to get there you have probably an interesting thought on this age-old and uh, futile debate of strategy versus execution it seems like you went from a spot that was like execution i'm sure there was some strategy in the beginning then you went into execution mode for a while and now you're doing and you're at a spot where like you could think strategy you could think execution your brain probably does both at the same time but how do you think about the strategy execution split and like what is important yeah i think i think part of it is just like having the right people involved i'm extremely fortunate my two co-founders i've known for 16 plus years you build a bunch of companies together my cto is like literally you know he's a savant in the truest sense of the world like i actually it's always been a funny thing because he didn't start that way. He worked for like every ounce of what he had. He was like, you know, bottom tier student. We're in university together. And like something just switched, you know, whatever, call it six, eight years ago, where just every room that he was in, he was the best in you, like every single time, right? And it's just like only perpetuated. And so I think a lot of it, like at this point, I'm driving a lot of strategy. I'm scrambling and like, we're working together in architecture, but like when it comes to execution, like he's doing a lot of that, right? Like the team is doing a lot of that. I have to keep uh, interrupting you and this is maybe going to make for bad audio, but like, how the fuck did that happen? How do you go from being bottom of your class to like all of a sudden being a savant? I promise you, I have no idea. Like this is, he says he, he was a grade behind me. He says he like, I, I was the one who came up and like, I had done computer science from a young age. School was like a joke for me. I did everything and like, you know, assignments that were supposed to take forever. I would just do in an hour. Like it was super trivial. And he would like take like three days to do the same thing. Like people would make fun of him. And he just like worked. He outworked everybody. By grad school, he was like pretty good. But then eventually it got to this point where like, I mean, it was like crazy. He did, he did contract work for a little while and he was doing uh, this thing with Samsung and Cigna, this big deal basically. And it was like make or break. And you know, there's this... I don't know how much of this. Basically, there's a very big problem that they'd spent unlimited resources on in a very long time. And he walked in and like within an hour and a half, basically had solved it. Was asked to basically just like, <laughs> you know, sit there and hang out for the rest of the time. And then all of this going on. But then, you know, we got to the same thing with the, the research that we did that ended up getting picked up by like Gnome and Fair. So we wrote it in Python just as like a test. And obviously it was way too slow. And then we rewrote it in like C++. And it was still way too slow. And he had just had a baby a four month old, he was living at my house and his baby would never sleep. And so he would walk his baby around all night in the middle of the night from like midnight to like 8 a.m. in this carrier and he would just pace around the house. And so he literally on his phone watched uh, the Udacity courses for CUDA, for GPU programming. He had never done any GPU programming in his life. Didn't do any exercises, didn't do anything. Walked around with his phone like this while he's just walking his baby around the house all day, all evening. As soon as he was done that, he sat down. He wrote every, he took the entire kernel virtual regret minimization algorithm, wrote it in CUDA, wrote every single kernel himself, custom wrote every kernel, stripped out everything, threw away TensorFlow, threw away all of it. And again, like 
you know, nothing ever moved in and out of the GPU. It's one of the most elegant pieces of G Like everybody else is just like, could not believe it. 5,000 X performance improvement on top of the algorithm that we had already created to do this. That was like a, uh, a more convergent algorithm. That's just like how he is now. Literally like, you know, you just like watch this thing on a phone, just like watch some guy lecture about it and then just like sat down and did it. That is He's so weird. We need, a, we need a documentary, I think. Like this is one of those things that you want to put on Netflix so that everybody like, normally it's like, yeah, well, school wasn't right for him because his brain was just like way too fast. It, like to start out as just like average and then get here is like inspiration nope. to everybody to keep working no. hard. There's a bunch of things that are just crazy now. Like a, the bulk of the code that got written, it drives our other co-founder crazy because he's like, he's like the relentless, like iterative shipping. He's just like coding all the time. And Ryan will just sit there for like, you know, four days, not writing a single line of code. And he's just like, has some paper out. And Caleb's like, Ryan, like you have to code this thing. Like you have to do it. And he's like, no, no, like I, just wait. And then he'll like sit down and he'll just code the entire thing, like without stopping, like in one go. Never break, never test, never do anything. Caleb will then come in and you'll write all the tests and do everything. And like most of the time, like it will just compile. Like, um, but just like the entire architecture, like start to finish, he just like maintains in his head. And the same thing, context switching. Like he's written, I mean, for a while he had written every piece of code that was in, that was in production, that was mainly of the core protocol. And everybody else, you know, we have all these teams spending all of this time on it and they'll spend a ton of time. It's very hard for them to go back and forth. They'll have spent months writing thousands of tests, doing all this stuff for this thing. And anybody will ask him any question about either one of them. He'll be like, yeah, it's like this. You know, he's just like, like I, again, I don't know what happened. I'm convinced like it's like Spider-Man. He got bit by something. Some toxic sludge fell on him. Uh, he's a freak now, but he's amazing. How big is the team total? 25. Is mostly engineers or at this point are you building out? Kind of yeah, no, it's like it's 17 engineers or so. Uh, we just hired our first two researchers, um, but everybody else was largely engineers. And then we have COO, GC and a couple other, couple other people. What do you do with all this, all this money? Is there going to be a, a layer zero labs fund now to, to, to see projects? No, we might like, we'll, we'll probably do grants or something like that, but ultimately like, you know, we're not going to do an internal VC fund. We've taken the money and we've loaned it out uh, to, you know, Genesis and groups like that. And we're like, you know, quote unquote, cash flow positive. Like our burn is less than the amount of interest that we earn on it. So like, we're I just here it. to build. We have infinite runway and our goal is just like, spend the time building the coolest things, be here for the long run, build the best possible system. So the venture round is as like an endowment for the company, which is <laughs> super cool. Yeah. And this is, this has been really, really fun. Where should people go to find the project and who, like who's, if, if you had to say like, this is my dream group of people, if you're listening to this, like I want you, are those just engineers building things on top of, of layer zero? Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. Like internally we add, like, if you are a God tier front end developer, right? Like if we're looking for, like if you work on the core react stuff, whoever like hit us up, if you're, if you're like, like we, we hold, the bar will be very high. If you are that person with an extremely high bar, reach out. In general, anybody who is interested in building anything in crypto, anything cross-chain, like would love to chat. We're working with as many people as we possibly can. We'll extend resources, whatever we can, sort of to make that process as easy as possible. But but that is, those are the people that we love and want to spend a bunch of time with. So undoubtedly. Very cool. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. This was a blast, particularly in the middle of, I can't even imagine how many messages you're going to have when you get back. So thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.